the behavioral changes, I think, is something that you can take and make a plan for the next year and keep a lot of those in place to be able to make the experience better for everybody that comes to ski and ride at Gunstock. And I've been working on that since the day that that, that Christmas week ended, talking to our senior people here and talking about ways that we can do it so that you don't have this mess in the base lodge. And it just looks terrible. And there's a line at 1130 to 1230 and no one can get any food. There's no place to sit because everyone's reserved tables. All these things that 10 or 20% of the people think is great and 80% thinks terrible, that's the chance to change it. And I'm planning on doing that. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Feels good to get back at it in 2021, starting with the incredible ski state of New Hampshire. Before we get to that, big news. We have a new URL. Stormskiing.com replaces skiing.substack.com. Same site, same look, same host, just a new name. As always, go there to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. Also, follow the storm on Twitter at StormSkiJournal and on Facebook at The Storm Skiing Journal. Another big announcement, The Storm has a new partner, still partnering with Mountain Gazette, which I will tell you more about in a minute, but I am pumped to announce this partnership with Helly Hansen. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week, like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I'm gearing up in the Alpha Life Aloft jacket. And the difference between this and other ski jackets is obvious. This thing is decked out with a Heli Tech waterproof, windproof and breathable outer layer. It is lightweight and incredibly warm, even on the coldest days. Plus the life pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket pocket, keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you want to get yourself new gear or know someone who needs to refresh their ski kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention the Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, over 140 years ago. Then hit me with a DM showcasing your new gear so I can give you some run on social media or the podcast. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. I got the first issue a couple months ago, and it's incredible. This is more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. The quality of the writing is outstanding. Huge, amazing photos. This is not like anything in snow sports media. It's very deep, incredibly varied, incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195 due out this spring. Mountain Gazette, 
When in doubt, go hire. Episode 34, Tom Day, President and General Manager of Gunstock, New Hampshire. All right, back to New Hampshire, an awesome, awesome ski state. We've heard from Cannon on the podcast, heard from Cranmore, covered Loon last year. This week, we're going to hear from a legend. Gunstock is a tremendous mountain with an incredible history. And the guy in charge of it all knows New Hampshire skiing better than anybody. Let's hear it. My guest today is the president and general manager of Gunstock Resort in New Hampshire. Gunstock is one of the oldest ski areas in the country in continuous operation since 1937. The ski area has 48 trails and glades at a 1,340-foot vertical drop, serviced by seven lifts, including a high-speed quad to the summit. His long ski career includes 13 years as the general manager of New Hampshire's Waterville Valley Ski Resort. Tom Day is my guest. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Tom, I want to start by talking about your career a little bit here. You're new to Gunstock, but you're very familiar with New Hampshire skiing and the New Hampshire ski industry. Take us through your New Hampshire ski career, uh, starting from the very beginning back in the 70s, and how you eventually worked your way up to be GM of Waterville Valley. Yeah, I um, I actually went to college at Plymouth State, uh, which is now Plymouth State University, but at that time was Plymouth State College. And when I um, graduated, I, I worked the summer at um, construction. And then that winter, I decided I wanted to work at a skier because I've been a longtime skier since I was a kid. Waterville Valley was right down the road. So I went and I got a job as a lift attendant. And I did that for about seven days. And they were, they were rebuilding a, uh, a chairlift called Sunnyside um, that had gotten struck by lightning. And I walked down to talk to the guy that was working on it. He was a Swiss engineer by the name of Fritz Schmutz. And um, he needed help, so I started. I went down and finished building that lift with them, and then uh, that summer they hired me to work on lift maintenance, and I did that for five years. We built four lifts internally ourselves. Uh, that's what people used to do in those days. Then I worked. Then I did lift maintenance for four or five years. Then I took over lift operations, and then I moved into lift uh, to the mountain manager position in uh, uh, 1984, and I did that till '96, and then I became general manager until 2010. So I believe that you started there back in 1978. Does that sound right? Yeah, 78 was when I started, correct. So take us back here, Tom. What was Waterville Valley like in 1978? And how much had it changed in the 32 years in between when you left as general manager in 2010? Well, you know, there was everything. It was all fixed grip doubles lifts. There was not a there was not a triple chair. There was no one even knew what a detachable was. There was one snowmaking line that went up to begin a terrain, and that was all there was with a tiny little compressor house. And gradually, um, it evolved into snowmaking about a hundred percent snowmaking, uh, two high speed detachable quads. I can remember when we put the first triple in. It was like, oh my gosh, there's a chair that seats three people, and. <laughs> And, and no one could figure out how to load it because they were bull wheel load. So you'd ski out and the chair would come around the bull wheel and they were so used to two people being there that the third person would never line up in the right spot and they would clean them out. So that was, that was confusing and everybody wanted to ride the triple chair because, my gosh, it's a triple chair. Um, so that the, the – and, and then it kind of just grew in leaps and bounds as it moved along. We had the second – uh, detachable, the White Peaks Quad. We had the second detachable in New England. Hunter Mountain had the first one. It was a Palma. And uh, so that was 1988 that we put that in. And that was also revolutionary because 
you know, all of a sudden the chair, the chair goes a thousand feet a minute, but it slows down to 150 feet a minute when you load. And a normal fixed grip chair would load anywhere from 350 to 400 feet a minute. So people would race out to get on it and then the chair wouldn't be there. <laughs> and, and so that was another struggle with getting people to understand that you don't have to race out to get on the lift anymore because it's not going 400 feet a minute. So, um, that was interesting to, to, uh, to observe. And, and basically, you know, the, the skiing attitude, the skiing personality um, hasn't changed at all. It was just the evolution of all these things coming to into play that, that were really revolutionary and as far as 100% snowmaking. And then you used to drive around in cats with powder makers on the back, which was just this big steel roller that had uh, corrugated steel on it. And uh, then we switched to tillers. And the tillers changed the whole surface of the snow. So it, that that evolution made the skiing from and and then with snowmaking, it used to be no one remembers now that you used to have to have rock skis early in the year mm -hmm. because you would open with fast grass and mm -hmm. um, and basically uh, when you started making snow, you didn't have to do that. There used to be trail crews all summer long that would just walk down over the over the trails and throw rocks off the trails into the side into the woods to get it so that it would be smooth enough to open with a very minimal amount of natural snow. So you really had a front row seat to the technological evolution in skiing over those three decades. And you had a 13 year run as general manager of Waterville Valley. And then you left the ski industry for a decade back in 2010. Why did you make that decision, Tom? And what did you end up doing for those 10 years? Um, Booth Creek Ski Holdings owned Waterville and they were generally that we had owned uh, nine other resorts and they were phasing out selling each resort per their plan. Um, a, a private company came in and bought uh, Waterville. Um, I was, you know, ready to kind of move on anyways. So I, um, I left in 2010 and I took a year off and, and lived in Park City for the winter nice. and uh, did a lot of skiing. And then I got involved. I wanted to see, because when you've been in the ski business all your life, you wonder if you can do anything else. Mm -hmm. And so um, I wanted to see if to use what I've learned um, running a business to get involved in different things. So I got involved in a manufacturing business that was struggling in Rhode Island and um, spent two years kind of, kind of getting that back on its feet. And then I took another four years off and went back out to Park City and then in uh, 2014, uh, 2015, um, I got approached by the by uh, two local businessmen who were building some welcome centers in conjunction with the state, their private state industry on 93 um, by the hooks of toll booths. And um, there were 230, uh, two, um, two very large buildings that were getting built on each side. They approached me to come in and get the project going and staff them and get it rolling. So I did that. And then I went back off again. For, that was an 18 month commitment. And then I went back out to Park City for another three or four years. And then um, the general manager here at Gunstock was retiring. So they were doing a search and I knew some of the people on the commission and I knew some longtime skiers here and they approached me and um, it seemed like a kind of a, a I, I was familiar with Gunstock obviously being in the area for a long time. And it just seemed like a great place. It's got a great history. And the people that were that, that ski here and work here were very, it was very interesting to me to get involved in the project. So I took that took that leap. Hey, I want to talk about Gunstock a little more in a minute, but that's interesting what you said about wanting to see if you could do stuff outside of the ski industry. So obviously, you're, you spent a long time as a leader leading this large resort in New Hampshire. 
Uh, how did those skills transfer? When you got to these other careers, did you find that you were able to do them using some of the the skills and the knowledge you had from running this large, complicated operation for so long? Yes, I, it did because um, Booth Creek had had a really put together some really strong business plans, and uh, we they analyzed every everything that we had done in the past, and you know they would say, "Well, how do you know when it's going to be busy?" And I'd say, "Well, when we're filling up parking lot eight by quarter and nine. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we put in, we put in things that, that, um, gave you a little more scientific, uh, understanding on how that was working and were able to communicate it to your staff. So those skills really helped in getting everything else running. And also financially, it's a very tough business, the ski business, you know, ultimately you have 13, basically 13 weeks to make money in it. And, um, that you you really need to analyze all your financials and all your decisions that get made need to be made based on what the end result's going to be. And that helped me in all these other businesses because um, the project in Hooksit, which was a $35 million project, um, I had to start it from the ground up and put all the financials in place and, and the tracking mechanisms. We had you know, there was, there was 16 gas pumps on each side mm. with, you know, multiples that we needed to understand all that. So all that I learned in that really helped me do that. And also when you're running your ski area, you, you, you can, you understand people well. And I think that helps anywhere you go is um, having to deal with the weather and the ups and downs of people's, you know, psyche when they, with your employees and your, and your guests, but your employees, dealing with a, you know, a rainy Christmas week, um, that kind of gives you a better idea of how people react to certain things. So it sounds like you were able to make that transition pretty successfully. It sounds like you had a little bit of fun too. Uh, how did you like that uh, Western Park City ski bum life? Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> you know, I was skiing 80 days a year and, nice. uh, and, and I also worked, I did part-time for Mountain Guide Insurance. They insure a lot of ski areas. Um, I was a I was a inspector for him, so I do like ten ski areas a year, and I'd go to um, I did anything west of Park City, so I I do Wyoming and Montana, California, and I'd go around to the areas, ski around with the with the staff, go through the rental shops and look at their paperwork and make sure things are getting done. I'd go up on the mountain, talk to the patrol about avalanche control, so that was a way to stay in the business and get. Um, get exposed to people at different resorts, which I think was really great for me because I did about 50 ski areas in, in, uh, in five or six years. And um, it was really interesting to see how other places ran both small and large ski areas and, and interacting with the people that run them because all of us people in the ski business are a little crazy anyhow. <laughs> so uh, it's good to see that it's, uh, it's universal. So ultimately, you end up going back to Gunstock going back to a full time and you had made these connections all around the country and spent a lot of time out West. So you're well-versed in ski culture from coast to coast. Is there something about New Hampshire, New Hampshire skiing, New Hampshire people that drew you back to it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's New Hampshire or New England overall. I mean, you deal with so much diversity in the weather and the ski conditions and you are dealing with besides you know, warm and warm, you know, cold thaws, rain, cold wind. Um, people in New Hampshire just put on more clothes and go ski. <laughs> and, 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 and if it's raining, they, they put on rain gear or, or a garbage bag and go ski. <laughs> and if it was below 30 degrees out West, everybody is wearing um, neck gaiters and, 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 you know, puffy coats. And um, so 
the the overall New England attitude towards skiing is just the coolest, and it's just amazing how people just don't you know worry about what the weather is. They want to go outside and ski, and that's what I what's what I really enjoyed about the New England uh, being around New England and and the ski areas there. It's 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 an interesting, cool group of both staff and guests. Yeah, that attitude and that mentality is ingrained, and and that's not going anywhere. But a lot did change in those 10 years that you were gone. Uh, and it sounded like you were still involved with the industry, but a lot of did change. And, and that includes the arrival of these mega passes like Epic and Icon into the Northeast. Was there a readjustment period or from the point of view of running a mountain, was it more or less the same as when you left it in 2010? Um, it's pretty much the same. You know, I was exposed to the passes because I, I worked a couple of mornings a week in Park City, which is a Vail resort. Um, so, I you know, I was very familiar with the Epic Pass. But, you know, running a ski area is kind of running a ski area. And um, you you have all these outside influences like these mega passes going on. But the way I looked at it as far as coming here is that you have you have an opportunity at a smaller resort like this. It doesn't have a mega, mega um, pass basis to have a personality and be a little more of a, of a customer oriented area than you can do if you're doing the kind of the mega pass marketing and this and that. So that's what we looked at here and and said, listen, we've got a very loyal skier base. It's a very much of a family mountain. The terrain is conducive to families. Um, the, the snow sports school is conducive to family growing families. We have a huge ski. Um, we have a huge school program that comes from all the surrounding communities that they, they come and they ski at night. Um, and, and there's some, some, some days, but not many since we, we eliminated a lot of that on Saturdays and Sundays because of the restrictions. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really pretty much the same. Just, you need to be, when you're an independent, you need to make sure that the people understand you're an independent and that you're going to have a different experience than you may, if you were going to, um, one of the mega resorts or the mega passes. So we'll talk a little bit more about passes in a bit here. Uh, from a technology point of view, snowmaking, grooming, uh, were there any big jumps in those 10 years that kind of surprised you? No, because I've been around a bunch of ski areas doing the inspections. I mean, the thing that's great is the snowmaking has become so much more efficient. The guns are use less air in the water. Um, it, you can, you can, because it's so expensive to make snow, you can really do a much better job, much more efficiently. So the biggest, I think the biggest, development that I saw realistically was the more efficient, uh, being able to make snow more efficiently, having to use less water and, and, and air than you had in the past. Other than that, I was around a lot of it. So, and, and I was staying in touch with all the other guys, all the GMs in New Hampshire I knew. So I was in touch with a bunch of them anyways. So obviously you're intimately familiar with the workings of Waterville Valley. And at this point, you're probably very familiar with Gunstock as well. So break this down for us, Tom. How are those two mountains similar from op operational point of view, and how are they different? Yeah, I mean, I think all of the ones, most of the ski areas in New England are all fairly similar. Yeah, it's just, you know, that you've got, you know, Waterville has more elevation. They've got some more trails. Um, but ultimately, you're you're all here. The operation's the same. You know, you're trying to make snow early season, get things rolling, you're all you're always going to have staffing issues because you have to employ so many people and and the you know the jobs are kind of demanding being a lift attendant being outside all day. Snowmakers are tough, but snowmakers just seem to really like making snow, right. and so that's 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 a you know a breed that that seems to come and, and enjoy what they're doing. Um, but I don't I don't think I think all all ski areas whether you're 
you know, whether you're Vail or Gunstock, you all face the same challenges. Um, and that's the weather, the satisfied guests and staffing levels. So I want to talk about the history of the mountain a little bit here. Gunstock is one of the oldest ski areas in the country, opened officially in 1937, as I mentioned in the intro. It was a Depression-era Works Progress Administration project. People have been skiing on it long before that. Talk a little bit about that history, Tom, and how that informs the identity of Gunstock today. Yeah, I mean, people, the the local people here are, are very into the history, and the staff that I that I inherited here were very into the history. And um, there's a there's a historical society that that uh, has stuff archived upstairs in our in our building. And because it started in like 1918 is when they first started to have um, some early downhill skiing, and it was the Winnipesaukee Ski Club, which is which is now the Gunstock Ski Club, and um, they they skied on the backside of the mountain into Guilford Village, mm. and then then we had the the first chairlift in the east um, that was built here by a company that that they got out of the Massachusetts area that built bleachers for um, for different things, and they wanted to get into the ski area ski business, and they're the ones who designed and built the lift. So um, it's and then they got into huge jumping and all the junks that were here and they were they were attracting two or three thousand people to come watch the jumping that's going on. So um, and then the Civilian Conservation Corps built the the lodge. It was a WA project and that that lodge is still here. It's been added onto, but it's just a really interesting, beautiful lodge. They used they they harvested timber from the local area. They used stones that they got out of the out of areas around here and that quarry that they had on Cobble Mountain. So um, the the history here is very, very, and that and that's why I, this woman wrote a book, The History of Gunstock by Carol Lee Anderson. And it's because all of the people that know all of these things, sort of like World War II um, veterans, they're all, they're all, you know, dying. And mm-hmm. so she wanted to make sure that the history stayed alive and that people understood what, what went on here and how how it evolved and um and it was very interesting to me to read it actually because i knew a little bit of the history before i came here but not as much as i i knew now so it's people are very into it yeah the evolution of the mountain is really interesting to me as you look at the different parts of the the series of mountains there that were developed and the order they were developed in and how it shifted around so the original chairlift on the grounds was a single chair they climbed up Mount Rowe starting in 1937. That's no longer an active part of the ski area, but the lift line looks like it's still there from what I can see on Google Maps, rising above the Penny Patu learning area. What can you tell us about that original development on Mount Rowe, Tom, and, and how people use it today? Well, what you see going up there was the original lift line. It's now a, it's now a power line that runs to the top to a, oh. to a tower that's up there, but that was the original lift line. And the... The Mount Rose side of it, there's there's a bunch of hiking trails over there that that's really what's getting utilized for. That were, um, they were old ski trails that that because people are hiking on that they're able to keep them um, keep them fairly clear. Mm-hmm. And there's um, but there's no other utilization over on that side right now as far as that goes, other than what you can see on like I said Google Maps. You can see some of the old trails from Alpine Ridge. That was there, but nothing's being done on that side because everything moved over to this side because there was better terrain when they moved from the west side of the mountain to this side, and when they moved over from from Mount Row, there was better terrain and it faced in a better 
um, direction for maintaining snow, which was a big deal, as we talked about earlier. Before snowmaking, you needed to have things that face more north so that the snow would last longer. So that, that single chairlift, is there any kind of marker or any other monument to that chairlift, or, or is it just the lift line and, and that's what's left of it? No, there's one of the there's those um, historical state markers that you see everywhere that you travel through any state. That uh, um, talks about the when the lodge was built and it was the first east eastern uh, first chair in the east. And then there's also um, they're in the process of building a little area down by the penny lift. There's a kind of a tree grove of trees there that they've got one of the old chairs and there's a plan for this summer to build um, some some sort of little area there that has a that has a description of what the chair was and why it was there and then and then then hang the chair to be able to have people to be, be able to see it um, and it's it's funny because you look at that chair and you look at what we have now and I'm sure that kids are going to go by and look at it and think huh was that really was that really what they did there yeah, I'm sure when you were out in Utah, you saw when you pull into the parking lot at Alta, they have an old single chair hanging there by the bus stop. Um, do you have a lot of those single chairs floating around still, or you just have the one left? I believe it's just the one. There may be a few more up in, in the areas behind the maintenance shop and stuff like that. But to the best of my knowledge, that's the one that they they've really tried to preserve. So there used to be a separate ski area called Alpine Ridge that also operated on Mount Rowe. And that lasted a couple of decades, starting in the 1960s. That eventually closed down. Belknap County, which owns Gunstock, which we'll get into, eventually bought that land. And I've seen proposals. They're kind of old, but I've seen proposals to expand Gunstock onto that old footprint eventually. Is there a chance that Gunstock could expand back onto that part of Mount Row in the future? Yeah, we're looking. We have master plans drawn up. Uh, Snow E, who does a lot of planning for skiers throughout throughout the United States, and and us have gotten together and and looked at what the master plans were and and are looking at making some tweaks to them right now because there's some pretty good terrain over there, and we'd like to think at some point we could um, build a hotel up here mm-hmm. and have it be skiing and ski out. And um, so there's there's always the discussion. I've hiked around most of all these old trails up here and taken a look at them. And um, I'm very interested in that part of the mountain. So I'd say that we are we are evaluating every area that's around here because just because Alpine Ridge didn't didn't, you know, get enough, enough ski visits to keep it alive. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have really good terrain and you can't you can't overlook something that a ski area that that evolved into what gunstock is you can't overlook the terrain that's on that side anytime around and see if you can reclaim some of the trails that were you know good skiing over there and what do you know what the vertical drop is on that on Mount Rowe? it's a it's less than here it's probably i i can't give you an exact on it but it's it's um it's you know it's quite a bit less than it is here However, you can get to it from here if you set up if you set the terrain up properly um, and replace a few of the lifts that are here. Uh, then that it would be it would be easily easily uh, skiable. Is there anything in that master plan about what kind of a chairlift would make sense if you did reopen Mount Row and develop it? You know, you there's a there's a couple of different talks about it. 
generally you you always want it you want to put in a quad because quads are sexy but you don't have to have a detachable quad as long as four people are riding in it that's that still has the quad appeal so um but you also have to look at what your what your unloads are like to see if it can distribute that many people so we're always moving around to what we think we need to do we know we need to replace a couple of lifts over on the main mountain uh, to be able to get Two, two routes to the top because our, our quad is very heavily used mm -hmm. and especially now where you can't load the lift like you used to be able to. So um, so it's, it, it's, it's a work in progress since I've been here working with the commission to try to figure out what the best usage is of the mountain because people come to, you know, it's not, people don't come, you don't build a new base lodge and you don't build, a, you know, something else. People come to ski. And then as they come to ski and more people ski, you, you evolve what your buildings need to be. Um, so we've, we're really looking at it as how do we get more people to come ski here and enjoy what we've got and then, and then build around what you need to do in the base area. So that, that area in Mount Road, do people hike and ski that in the winter right now? Yes. Guys skin it all the time. They, they, when there's enough snow, uh, we got that, we got, we got 36 inches of snow two weeks before Christmas. We got, we were in that, we were in that pocket. Like, yeah. you know, guys up the road got five inches and then it rained three inches on Christmas. Oh. So um, that took care of that 36 inches, but there were people skinning all over the place up there because there's some pretty good terrain. I've yeah. actually skied some of it and, and there's some pretty good terrain when you got the snow. So people are skinning all the time. And that's, we're seeing a lot more uphill skinning than we did in the past mm -hmm. also. So, um, it's it's still being utilized a lot. Well, hopefully we get some more snow so you can so people can do some more uphilling this season. I so on the other side of the current gunstock ski area, there was the uh, Cobble Mountain. There were, that was originally developed for with a rope tow, and there's some downhill skiing. That looks like it's your cross country facility today. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And, and we have, we actually have, we're one of the few ski areas. I think we have, there's only two in New Hampshire. We have snowmaking on our cross country trails. Mm, nice. So um, that makes a huge difference because obviously we do have, you know, the, um, the ebbs and flows of, of mother nature here. And um, uh, that, that helps it because snowmaking snow is pretty bulletproof. No matter what happens, it's mm -hmm. going to be there. And so that's helped us um, be able to develop the trails. And I, 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 I'm a big cross country skier. I love skate skiing. So, um, in fact, we have a, we have a, we had a problem with our snowmaking pump down there. So the past two nights we made huge piles of snow on the bottom of the mountain and we load up a manure spreader and, uh, with a tractor and we bring it down and we've been spreading it down on the trails. Uh, just so you know, for your listeners, we did clean the manure spreader out <laughs> prior, prior to putting snow in it. Noted. So they've been they've been hauling it down. They worked all last night. And they'll work tonight because we right. don't have night skiing with these two nights. And they're spreading it out there because we have a race on Friday, a uh, high school race. So we wanted to make sure we could get the course set up for them. The, the amount of creative ingenuity that goes into keeping a ski resort running continues to amaze me. And that's that's another example. Um, so as you're skating around Cobble Mountain, are there any remnants of those old rope toes or, or the down, old downhill operation? Or is that been cleaned out it's pretty much cleaned out i mean you can see over on the alpine side you can see all the old footings and stuff and there's an old there's a or one of the hiking trails on the alpine side is where a warming hut used to be and that's that's all that's it could it still had the the footing the base the concrete base 
and you can go out on that thing and the views of Lake Limpisaki are phenomenal, as they are from the top of the mountain here, but that hiking trail. We take people up there and you take a little side turn up by 300 feet and you walk out on this clearing and you're like, wow. <laughs> uh, so a little higher up the mountain on Gunstock Mountain, I've seen proposals called the Southwest Pistol Expansion. Is that still part of your master plan? Is that something you're still considering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking at you know every you see every five years you redo a master plan, and every five years you kind of discuss what you did in, in the last one. And and the good thing about um, with guys like Snow Engineering and stuff is they take they take a lot of input from the from the staff as far as what they see, what the flow seems to be, what goes on, and uh, so we're in the process, like I said, with them relooking at you know what's should we go towards pistol should we go towards mount row the old the old alpine ridge where where are we going to get the best additional terrain that's going to offer us the best skiing that we can have that doesn't have a lot of runouts at the bottom of it what would that southwest pistol expansion look like where would that be what kind of how many trails would it be what do you have in mind over there it looked like there was going to be three potentially over there at the ones we were looking at, but then we're rethinking that anyhow to see if that a couple of them make the sense, like I said, without having runouts at the bottom of them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's sort of, you, you know, you take it again, you lay down the maps, you look at the, the beauty of now, as opposed to when I first started at Waterville, we were cutting trails, you'd go through the woods with a compass <laughs> and you'd have a flagging tape with you. And um, actually Joe Cushing, who was one of the original starters of snow engineering, um, and Sel Hannah, in fact, Sel Hannah, Sel's Choice of Water was named after Sel Hannah. Um, you know, you'd walk through the woods with a compass and you'd mark, mark trails and you'd, you'd have a topo map with you in a plastic bag, basically, because um, they'd try to look at the topo lines to figure out where you should go. And now they can lay all that stuff out on computers. Nice. So it saves you a whole lot of time and effort. So you can make decisions sitting in a room with guys going, well, yeah, this is how this looks, rather than going up and hiking down over marking some trails and then looking at a topo map and going, Oh, well, you shouldn't have turned that there. You know, um, it's, 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 so it's, it's a lot easier to plan. So looking at the current trail map, where would that expansion be? Would it be off the top of the current pistol lift? Yes, pretty much. So. And off the backside there where it's forest right now. It wouldn't go off the backside. Well, it would go off to the ski uh, lookers left and it would go down into the into that area you could see that if you look at the trail map you can see where the cross-country trails go up into that point there so it would kind of come down into that point and almost you know butt into the cross-country trail but like i said you know this is such a work in progress right now again since i've gotten here as far as really where where is the um um where can we get the most bang for the buck to create you don't want to just cut a trail because you cut a trail. You want to cut a trail to make sure the trail skis right. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to, you want to cut a trail to say, I've got, instead of we've got 50 trails, we've got 55. We just want to make sure that they all ski right. And right now, the terrain here is really good. Mm-hmm. The, the trails are all really fall line oriented. And, and um, my favorite trail personally is recoil off the top. It's a New Englandy type trail. It's got some great curves to it and it's got some killer fall line to it. It's got a nice pitch. So that's what you try to look at. You try to make sure that you don't create something that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And what, what kind of timeline are you looking at, Tom, for any possible expansion? It sounds like you have a lot of options here between Mount Row and Pistol and everything else. Do you have any sort of long-term dates you can put on this? No, you know, it's always, it's always, you know, how good your winter goes, what you need to do. Um, 
because we are county owned, which I know you want to talk about at some point, you have to be able to propose to the county that it's going to be a, um, that it's going to be a, uh, when you do any additions, it's going to add additional skiers and additional revenue. You've got to justify your ROI on that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's always a moving target. And then um, I started here January 15th and, and March 15th, basically we got COVID. Yep. So um, I spent two months working at a normal ski area and then uh, uh, I I went to a COVID ski area. So that changed a lot of what, what our our forward momentum was. Well, yeah, let's talk about those two things. So we'll, we'll start with ownership and then we'll shift to COVID. So Gunstock is very unique for those who don't know. It's the only ski area in New England that I'm aware of that's owned by a county government. There's a couple other uh, state government owned ones, but I think there's advantages and disadvantages to government ownership. But from your point of view, Tom, curious, why does it make sense for a county government to own a big asset like Gunstock? Well, I mean, it's they've the, it basically the government, the county got involved in it, you know, back in the forties because um, there was there was it was under underfunded, underutilized, and, and they realized that there was an asset that needed to have some more support. And I think at this point, the the good thing about it is that you you do have a lot of interested parties that are that are um, that are Belknap County residents. And you've got you've got the delegation is uh, 17 or 18 delegates that that represent all the Belknap County area. And then you have five commission members that are basically like a board of directors for the ski area. So it works a lot like a private biz enterprise does as far as that with dealing with the board of directors. Um, you just have to go through a little more. Uh, as, opposed, as opposed to a private business, you have to go through some more processes to be able to get permission to do something or to be able to to um, basically borrow money, which you, you don't borrow it from the county, but you do get a you do, do get a county rate when you go to a bank. So there's there's the difference between between county ownership and private ownership is it takes a little longer to get something done because you do have to go through a few more um, a few more steps than you would normally with a private ownership. So the state of New Hampshire also owns a couple of ski areas. They own Cannon, uh, which remains under management by the government. And then they own Mount Sunapee, which they lease out to Vail and is now part of the Epic Pass and everything else. Uh, just looking at those two models, Tom, it, it's it's kind of a cool experiment to see different ways of doing it and what works and what doesn't. From your point of view, why does government management make sense rather than the lease to operate model that the state uses with Sunapee? I think that people that right now the county likes that Gunstock is owned by the county and managed by the county. And I think probably that's that's discussions that occur off and on. I haven't been here long enough to, to know the history of that, of whether or not should the county be managing the business, should it be a you know, should it be a, a you know private business. But right now the county's happy with the um, with the way that the, the skier is operating and the revenues that it produces. But there's always discussions because there's discussions about everything. It's where, where's, where, what's the best, what's best for the county overall by who operates the resort. And those, I think those discussions occur, you know, fairly regularly. So let's talk about the COVID shutdown a little bit. Back in March, Gunstock was one of the last four ski areas in the Northeast to shut down along with fellow New Hampshire ski areas, Cannon, Bretton Woods, and Waterville Valley. Most of the large resorts in the region were closed by Sunday, March 15th, but you were able to stretch the season into the middle of the following week. I believe you made it to the 18th, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, take us into your decision to stay open, Tom, after most of the rest of the industry had packed it in. 
Well, the the you notice that the the four that you're talking about are all privately owned, mm-hmm. and so the other resorts that that ended up closing, you know, Loon closed and Sunday River closed. Loon closed in New Hampshire, Sunday River and Sugarloaf closed in Maine. You know, they're all owned by Boeing Group and they have other uh, resorts out west. And then Sunapee, of course, is, is a Vail pro- um, property. Mm-hmm. So those those were the bigger guys that were making decisions based on a lot of their other resorts and what they thought overall was the, the correct decision. Privately owned, we didn't have that pressure you know california colorado had a lot of issues with with the with veil and and there was a lot of um there was a lot of covid cases and same with park city so those guys made very good decision to shut down based on all of their resorts but when you have private ownership we were able to keep rolling and and really paying attention to what was happening out there as far as uh, covid exposure and transmissions and what was this what was covid you know what you know no one really knew what you know what COVID was. In fact, it was Corona at that time, mm-hmm. and it was easy to remember because it's the same as a beer. So, right. um, so we 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 operated a little bit longer, and then as more information came out, um, everybody the four the four guys that that run the resorts were all talking to each other all the time. The four general managers and. Um, Talking about how's our, how's your staff doing? What's the staff thinking about this? And where do we stand with with the comfort level that we have? And now that we learn more about about what what this this virus is, and once we got to that point where we ran a little bit longer, people I mean people were loving it. We were busy as heck. You know, we had to close our base lodges because you, you didn't want people inside. As we learned these things, we left the bathrooms open, so you weren't doing any food and beverage. But people were coming and and. Uh, and skiing and enjoying it. And then we got to a point where we all said, you know what, we're just not comfortable with this any longer. We need to pull the plug on it. Everyone agreed. And that's when we stopped. So we made it a little bit longer, but we started evaluating the, the exposure levels and what our comfort level was as, as, with our staff as people learned more about it. And we did. And that's when we said, forget it. And what was that week like for you, Tom? Because there, there seemed to be a lot of pressure from the outside to close. And it sounded like there was a lot of pressure to stay open as well, because like you said, you were busy, people were loving it. I know it was probably a blur, but what was that week like for you just trying to manage one of the few remaining ski areas open in the Northeast? You kind of, you were getting, as every day went by, you got more uncomfortable with the idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, like I said, we talked to, I talked to the other three guys. We all know each other in this business and I knew them all from when I was in it before. And we'd all be saying, well, what's your, what's going on? How are you handling this? What are you doing about tickets? How are you making sure your staff isn't getting exposed to that? How are you cleaning your lift buildings? So it became, it became the start of the, how are we going to deal with COVID going forward mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, lessons. So it, it was getting, it was getting uncomfortable. And that's when we all said, you know, we need to, we need to pull the plug. It wasn't one of those things where we woke up every morning and went, wow, look how busy it is. This is great. Right. We were all going, wow, look how busy it is. Ooh, what do we do now? Yeah. You know? So when the shutdown hit, it really seemed like a worst case scenario. And there was a quote from you in New England Ski Industry News back in May. This said that the shutdown cost $800,000 for gun stock in March alone, and that you expected season pass revenue to come in 50% below normal. You were actually able to increase your season pass holder base by the time the season started. Uh, take us through this evolution, Tom. How were you able to turn this around and end up with more pass holders than you started with? 
Yeah, well, so the quote in the New England Ski Journal was a, a little off, but because I was talking about what the summer business would be doing, because mm. we we ended up we have a big summer business here. We do about forty thousand visits. We have zip lines and mountain coasters and and um, tree top courses and stuff like that. So, um, but it was when we shut down, everybody was like, you know, oh gosh, what's going to happen now? What are we going to do? So we we didn't run our summer business at all. We did our uh, we have a pedal assist e-bikes and Segway tours because they were socially distant. No one knew quite how you handled. We didn't want to do our mountain coaster because you have to reach across someone and hook, hook them into a mountain coaster. You're doing a zip line where you're giving somebody a harness that someone else had on and you're wearing helmets and all these things. As we learned more about it, we're like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that stuff. So um, I think everybody, you know, certainly myself, went, okay. Let's just slam on the brakes. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out how this is going to work. Let's decide what the best business decision is, both on the financial side of it and, the, and, and, and being able to protect our staff from the unknown because no one knew what the heck this thing was. And I don't think anyone expected, and I, I think probably it wasn't handled as well as it could have been. No one would have expected it to be in the position we're in now. So we looked at it and said, we're closing down the mountain up summer operations. It's not even worth having them. It's just not safe. And then at the time, I was not sure what would happen with people as far as buying season passes. But then what evolved was all of a sudden, businesses were, were closing their, their, their offices and people working from home, which was this monumental. I mean, granted, there was probably 20% of our workforce worked from home, but nothing like, like what happened now. All of a sudden, these people working from home, and I'm talking to friends that belong to large law firms in Boston. And he's going, you know, this is you know, working out really well. And he did a lot of international work. He goes, I'm doing depositions on, on Skype now or Zoom. And he said, you know, so all of a sudden people realized that it worked being home and that you could actually run your business, do your business and have, have this you know, work at home schedule. So as we rolled into the fall, we, um, we, we talked to a lot of our season pass holders. What are they doing? How are they doing it? And we found out that they were, and at that point then, they'd had their kids at home. They'd been working at home. They were sick of being home. <laughs> and, and, they, and they were happy to let their kids get outside. And skiing is that, that um, it's a sport that, that is pretty much, and as I say to everybody I talk to, everything's different. You got to boot up in your car. You have to wear a mask on your way to the lift. But once you get to the lift, it's no different than it was when you skied last year or the year before last we always wear goggles we always wear masks we always wear gloves so the experience of skiing itself is the same getting there and uh, and what you can and can't do going into a lodge and this and that that's the difference and people were have been very receptive to that so we we were our season pass sales were very strong and they continued to be strong right up until we opened and our our school groups which we thought would be half of what we were are back up to full boat again and so the our, our college pass sales were great because the college kids, you know, they're they're home more than they're in school. So they, we have a lot of happy, we have a lot of happy college kids skiing um, here that that uh, are learning remotely, and 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 it seems like they're doing a lot of learning on these chairlifts. So um, it 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 just changed. No one knew what was going on. It changed and evolved, and and I think the behavioral changes in this business to me is a good idea 
-hmm. and people are learning to reserve their tickets online, snow sports online, uh, rentals online. So you can make it so it's not just this mess when everybody bombs into a place in the morning. Mm -hmm. And everybody go, you know, our, our lodge is reservations only. Everybody isn't going in the lodge at 1130 and, and throwing all this stuff all over the floor and <laughs> trying to get something when you can't find anybody to sit, place to sit down. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's just the behavioral changes, I think, were very beneficial. And I think it's stuff that we can all work with if we're smart to be able to make the ski experience much more pleasant going forward. And are you seeing this increase in pass holder sales translate to more people on the mountains more of the time? Because I've you're obviously you're there every day. I've been out skiing quite a bit this season. And from my observations, it seems like weekdays are far busier weekends are getting busier a lot earlier than they were before. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. Midweek, um, we expected it to be better, but it's better than we had expected. <laughs> um, and, and weekends, the trouble with the, with the weekends is that, um, you know, our season pass holders can, don't have to make reservations. They can come and go skiing. You're, if you're going to, Buy a day ticket. You have to buy it online and, and have it when you get here. We have RFID chips, and, and you know, and so that that's not a problem. You can reload it. But we've had to limit the ticket sales that are available because um, number one, parking, because we have some remote parking, and we don't want to deal with shuttles. Mm -hmm. And number two, when you have one high speed quad like we do, that's kind of and it goes straight all the way to the top. That's where people want to ride. And of course, because you can't, so if your uphill capacity is 2,400 per hour, I thought we'd drop down 20, 20% and it's more like 40% because um, you're putting single people on a chair, double people on a chair, probably every 10th chair has four people because they're traveling together. So um, in the process of that, you've got a line that that's 13 minutes long that in a regular year with regular loading on that thing it would be four minutes. So we looked at all of those. We looked at parking. We looked at the lift capacities because all the other lifts basically don't have lines on them because they fix grips and everybody wants to be on a quad um, that goes to the top. And we looked at all that stuff and we said, okay, we've got to cut our, our lift, our uh, ticket sales, which we did. We knew how many season pass holes we had because the beauty of RFID chips is you can look at every day what's going on. And we watched it as it grew and grew and grew. And we knew we sold 25% more passes than we did the prior year. Um, then we said, okay, this is how many passes we have. Then we started releasing 500 tickets and then 750 tickets. And then, so we, we kept creeping up until it got to the point where one day I went in and I went out, skied around, looked at the lines, came in and said, okay, that's all the tickets we can sell. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about passes here. So it's interesting. You sold quite a bit more than last year. Gunstock was one of the few ski areas that didn't offer any sort of COVID related refund or deferral option. Um, that I'm aware of. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But take us into your thinking here, Tom. Did you consider some sort of pass guarantee? And if so, why did you ultimately conclude that it wasn't necessary? Well, we always had somewhat of a pass guarantee because you could turn your pass in for a um, for gift cards for the the the, pro, the uh, amount of the pass. But we we didn't need. It, and it was there. And if people asked about it, we explained it to them. And then it's, it's, it's in the agreement, but it's not like in the, a big bold face on the top. And we just looked at it and said, once again, um, the big guys really had to come out with bold statements about what they were going to do because 
you know, they sell millions of passes. And so I, I didn't want to be, have Gunstock's decisions forced by the fact that these, you know, conglomerates um, had to make these um, announcements so that they could ensure that people would feel comfortable buying their passes because we're a drive-to resort and a lot of their resorts are destination resorts. So there's a big difference between people deciding whether they want to fly and go stay in a hotel than if they want to drive their car from Boston up here. And so to me, that was there was a bunch of things in the industry that get driven by those guys, which I think they're very well managed. I think they're you know incredibly well managed companies, but I, I, I'm not a big one for following suit. So I just felt that we had a lot to offer to those people and, and that we didn't need to follow what they had to say, even though we did technically have a guarantee. And so when your customers ask you, hey, what happens if we have another COVID shutdown in February or whatever, what have you been telling them? Uh, we, you know, we said that we do issue gift cards if, if there's a problem going forward. To be honest with you, we didn't have a lot of people ask that. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. So you Gunstock also joined a college pass. You mentioned you have a lot of college skiers. You joined the college pass with Cannon, Waterville Valley, and Cranmore. Take us into your decision to join that pass, Tom, and why that made sense for Gunstock. Well, those three guys called me because Bretton Woods didn't want to stay in it any longer. And, and they said, are you interested in being in a college pass? And, and I said, and I know all three of them. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I haven't been here that long. Let me take a look at what we sold for college passes. And, and then I, uh, you know, we did okay, but not what I thought we could do. We're so close to the University of New Hampshire. Mm. It's like an hour away max, probably 45 minutes. So um, I said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. And they wanted us to be involved in it because we have night skiing. So we run five lifts and uh, we have 22 trails open at night, including a really big terrain park that's lit up. So that they that appealed to all of them that we were going to that could all of a sudden in their world um, be able to introduce a, a fourth ski area that had a lot of a lot of um, opportunity to get any of these college kids or or to be able to come here at night and ski and ride. Those three mountains plus Bretton Woods are together on the White Mountain Superpass. So it's Cannon, Waterville Valley, Cranmore, Bretton Woods. Uh, that gives unlimited access to those four mountains. Would you consider joining that pass? No, you know, I, I, we've got a we've got a pretty decent, we've got a pretty good pass base and I don't think we need to expand it to any, anywhere, anywhere else. I think if, if, um, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's working well for those guys. I just don't know how, you know, we, when I was at Booth, when we were at Waterville, we had the Freedom Pass. We were one of the first people to introduce a three resort pass. And it was, it was uh, Waterville, Loon, and Cranmore. And we saw that the, the Loon people skied at Loon, the Waterville people skied at Waterville, and the Cranmore people skied at Cranmore. I mean, we, and it was a heavily discounted pass and we sold a lot of them. So I just don't, I don't, this, that that super pass stuff it just doesn't interest me i i think we have our identity and we've got our loyal season pass holders and i think our pass base will continue to grow if we if we if we do things right and uh so yeah no it's those those ones don't don't i don't see the appeal to them to me so those are unlimited passes the white mountain super pass and unlimited pass curious about your opinion of the indy pass uh canon pat's peak and black in New Hampshire, now all in the Indy Pass. And Indy Pass founder Doug Fish told me on the podcast that Pat's Peak GM Chris Blomback was impressed with the percentage of Indy Pass users 
who made their first ever visit to his mountain on that pass. Uh, have you talked to Doug over at Indy Pass, and is that something you've considered? Yeah, he came and saw me uh, when I first started. And once again, you know, I I didn't see the value of it for here. I, we do a really good program in our snow sports as far as um, intro to skiing and getting people up here. And and I I, I just didn't see – I don't think the, the marketing um, – appeal the marketing side of it didn't appeal to me um there was just it just once again here as i learned more about it and spoke to our staff here our senior staff our directors it just wasn't something that that i thought was fit here while we're on the subject of multi-passes i'm just curious about your opinion of operating right next door to vale which now owns four mountains in new hampshire i'm just curious to hear your thoughts on operating an environment like that where skiers can get access to four mountains in your state and a bunch more around the country for a very low price does that introduce any particular challenge for you or or do you view it more as an opportunity to set yourself apart as this non-corporate destination yeah i i mean i think all challenges are are, are opportunities and and so when you look at what they have to offer and how they market it and what they do with it then you just go the other way and say, you know, you can go and you can take advantage of that pass. And, and having been at Park City, I used to see all the people from the east that would would um, be, you know, they, they skied at their home mountain and then they'd go out to Park City for a week because they considered to be that they were skiing for free. And um, it it just, to me, it's, it's the opportunity to say, we're not those guys. Um, and we don't have that pass. However, we've got a product that we can offer that is a totally different world. And, um, and uh, I think it, it's an opportunity to, to identify yourself more. I think people, um, and once again, I'll say that Bale runs, does a, runs a great organization and they're very professional with what they do. But I think sometimes that corporate mega group um, turns people off and they look for an alternative to that. And that's what we can offer. Well, it sounds like people are wanting to be part of that story at Gunstock from the numbers you're citing for your season passes. So well done on that. Uh, let's talk about the mountain a little bit, uh, starting with your chairlift fleet. You have a pretty new fleet at Gunstock. That high speed quad is not even 20 years old, I believe. Um, Ramrod and Tiger date back to the 1980s. Overall, Tom, are you happy with the lift fleet at Gunstock? I mean, they're certainly safe, and they and they're these fixed grip lifts just chug along and 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 do what they do. I I think that we need to take a look at um, how you access them. They they're kind of spread out, and it's a little bit of a stretch between lifts. So my goal would be to be able to to potentially replace a couple of them with a high speed quad that goes to the top. So, I mean, they're, they're great. They're, you know, the top of my list, they're, they're bulletproof. They run well. We don't have problems with them. They're just, they're just spread out a little bit more than I would like as far as people to be able to access them. And uh, I think that's what we're, that's what we're looking at with our master plan is how do we, how do we kind of make it a little more central to people to get there? So are you talking about Ramrod and Tiger, maybe replacing those with one lift? Yes. And then you also mentioned an alternate route to the summit. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I believe there used to be two double chairs to the summit. Is is that old lift line still there from from the other double? And could you potentially use that as maybe not a top to bottom lift, but a, a mid a mid mountain to top lift? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they use the same lift line to put the quad in that they use for those. So I, you know, we we've looked at a bunch of ways that we can get a quad to get to the top again. 
from another direction that gives you different access. And that's those things that I was talking to you earlier about when you're looking at your topo maps and you're saying, okay, can you get a trail to come around here that you can swing over here to get there from it? So I'm happy with all the lists. I think they serve some great terrain. They just need to be, you know, you've seen the trail map. They, they're they a little they're a little far apart. And so it makes it a little, a little, a little more difficult because um, while skiing is a sport, people sometimes don't like to do anything that requires you to go uphill. So um, that that we need to be able to identify that. So I'm, I'm curious about your relationship to local racing programs or academies. We've seen a few instances around the Northeast, like the Franconia Notch Ski Club at Cannon or Gould Academy at Sunday River, where these entities actually engage in raising money and putting in a lift onto the mountain. And in exchange for that, they get preferential access to them for their racing folks. So do you have an affiliation or relationship with any similar local institution? And if so, could they potentially work out some kind of deal like that on Gunstock in the future? Yeah, we have the Gunstock Ski Club. They've had a long, as I said, that started in 1918 and evolved into from what it was to what it is now. And they, they've got a long affiliation. They've got a board of directors. They've been great to work with since I've been here. They built their own, they built their own clubhouse um, over at the base of Tiger Lift that they funded themselves. Um, and so we've not had any discussions about that really. We've just been talking about how we can continue to work together and, and, um, and they totally understand that, that they're here to ski race on the hill and that they need to make sure that, that they understand that we need to be fiscally successful. And, um, and they've been fantastic to work with as far as training and everything, because everything trained, changed so much with ski racing. You can only over, have 100 kids in a race now. They have to come in, in their pod of, of, um, of the schools or, 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 or academies that they're from or ski clubs. So it's been a, a fact I was just with them yesterday morning discussing. We had a race yesterday and um, I'm sorry, Friday. And um, just to see what, what it looks like. And we scheduled a lot of races at night so that they could they could have more races because we have the night skiing. So they picked up a couple from, from some other areas. And because kids can't travel to Massachusetts, that made a big difference as far as the races here um, to travel from, you know, or into Vermont, actually. So they're, they're great to work with, but we haven't had any discussions about whether or not they wanted to fund a lift. Uh, how about snowmaking? What kind of shape is Gunstock's snowmaking system in, and, and what's your long-term plan for upgrades there? It's actually it's actually in good shape. Uh, they, they, before I got here, they constantly maintained, you know, getting new energy-efficient guns all over the hill, tower guns, uh, which is the way to go. And so um, there's some questions about how we run to the top right now and and what we can do about making it so that we can we, – we have a, a – we have a different system. It's because it's high pressure at the top and low pressure at the bottom. So it's in good shape. It does. We cover a lot of terrain. This what this was a weird winter because it never got. You know, it's okay to get three inches of rain as long as it's ten degrees the next day. Um, it just never got cold until like a week ago. So you're making snow for five days on a trail. You ought to be off from in three days because it's twenty four degrees. And 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 we're you know we're in central New Hampshire. We're not we're not Bretton Woods or Waterville or Cannon. We're not up in the you know, they've got the elevation advantage. So when you get a difference in six degrees, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. How's your water supply? Oh, uh, good. We have a good water supply. We have a reservoir that, that we can draw from after October 30th or something like that. So we, we have, um, we have good water supply that replenishes itself. 
I want to talk a little bit about your night skiing operation right now that goes about halfway up the mountain. Uh, has there ever been any talks of extending that up to the summit? No, it's just, it's, it's more difficult to be able to manage um, that way because this way, the trails that you have are easier, easier to control. There's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of um, variety. So at this point, it's, it seems like it, it's pretty efficient the way it's set up right now. And we, we've been selling, we are normally a good night for us would have been 150 or 200. And we're, we're, we're doubling that in sales now in night skiing. People have just absolutely latched on to night skiing because they, if they can't ski during the day, they're going to come ski at night. If kids are, you know, our school programs are booming. Um, and, and the night skiing has been really appealing to people, but there's no, there's no need to, uh, to get to the top. I don't think it offers anything more. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we're on the subject of night skiing, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, Schweitzer Mountain out in Idaho canceled night skiing for this coming MLK weekend, basically due to a lot of drama where the night skiing folks weren't wearing masks at the same rate as the people during the day. They were fighting with the lifties about it, causing a lot of problems. GM sent out a note said, sorry, we're canceling it. Um, have you seen a similar dynamic at Gunstock where mask enforcement is more difficult during those night skiing sessions than during the day? No, everybody's been really good about that. I mean, you get, you get, you know, the one or two people that, you know, are a little bit of an issue. And, and we, we've encouraged at all the orientations that I go to, the, the whole discussion about masks is if you have somebody that doesn't want to wear a mask, don't confront them, just get a hold of me or one of the other directors. And um, that's, and then I'll, I race right up there and we deal with them. Very few people, very few people we had any issues with. Everybody's been great about it. Everybody's been complying with it. Um, the night people, I think, feel a little more comfortable because it's just not as as many people around. So you 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 know you you have to remind them because people will pull them down when they're skiing down, and then they ski in the line, and they kind of when you say something to them, hey, mask over your nose. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So um, no, no, I think I think out there, I actually know those guys at Schweitzer, and and um, and I think it's a, a little bit of a different group of people that ski there at nights. So I think that's maybe where they had their problems. And we've been, we've, I mean, I'm surprised how well everybody's been, no one's been giving us, you know, we have food trucks in the parking lots. We have uh, bathrooms in the parking lots, nicer, you know, trailer bathrooms. And people have just been putting on their masks when they leave their cars. And, and I, it's pretty, it's pretty great. So looking at the trail map, it looks like the mountain is fairly built out. Uh, is there, apart from the proposed expansions we discussed earlier, is there any room within the current trail footprint to expand? I'm curious in particular about wooded areas between trails you could possibly glade. Yeah, I mean, you'll see there's some really good glades here. I just wish we got more natural snow. Um, um, the recoil glades, that that is a that is a western glade. That is a western tree skiing area. It lasts, it pitches the pitch is unbelievable on it. It it it's long, um, and if and we go in and we mow it, and we have we hand mow it in the summers. We rolled a bunch of rocks out of the way this year to try to make it better. That is a killer glade, um, and we uh, the there's one on the top too um, that um, that that's good but not as long. So we were talking about other, we had walked, skied around and we had talked about a couple other spots to glade out because I think it's great. And I'd love to be able to have 
to glade out some other areas. But like I say, recoil glades, if I can figure out how to get snowmaking in there, and if my snowmaking supervisor is listening to this right now, he's, he's probably banging his head on the wall. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I would love to do that because those there's some really good glade skiing here. It's got the right pitch. It's not too steep, but it's got a good fall line that I would love to get into some more of it. But those ones that we have now are really nice. Uh, that would be tremendous. Uh, are there any other areas that aren't necessarily gladed now that you think would be good candidates for it between existing trails? Yeah, there's some stuff over on the skiers right looking up that we see a flintlock comes down and there's a big gap in there. I think there's some spots in there too that would be good and that I skied around with patrol and we talked about that with them because all the, you know, everybody wants to see more glades and staff and guests alike. But, um, uh, it, you know, it, it's it's something that we're looking at all the time. And this isn't a, this isn't a gunstock pitch. It is like there is some really good stuff here in these glades. It's just a matter of getting in there in the summer and having the manpower to clear those out, or or is there a regulatory step to that that you have to take with the county? Nope. It's getting in there and clearing it out. So uh, let's just talk about your COVID operating plan to wrap up here. You put a lot of thought into this, and your video was really great, by the way. I was one of the best ones that I've seen out there. Um, now that you've had several weeks to kind of sort things out and, and feel it out, including a very busy holiday period where you didn't have as much terrain as probably you wanted, uh, what's your assessment? How's it going? How's COVID life? You know, it, it would be better if it wasn't COVID life, yeah. but but it's not going bad. It just it just It seems like you spend a lot of time – walking through the parking lots, walking through the lift lines. Um, you know, our patrol does, when they do laps, they go through the lift line and tell people to put their masks up because they've forgotten. Um, it's, it's, it's working out all right. People don't want the, the food and beverage side of it is not good because we've got our, we've got it set up that, you know, you're a minimum of six feet apart. We've reservations only and people just don't want to come inside. And so that's become an issue and uh, the food trucks are rocking it in the parking lots. And we're fortunate because our parking lots are very close and flat. So people can actually go out and, and enjoy themselves. Um, you know, people have been bringing barbecue grills out. Uh, we had a bunch of discussions. Like I said, you saw my, my video. I had a lot, we had a lot of views on that. I mean, six or 7,000 views. And, and we, people have called me and said, what about, I'm a little older. I don't like putting my boots on in the car. I can't do this. I said, you know what, you guys, this is what everybody does out West. Bring a chair with you, bring a lawn chair, fold yep. it up, put it in the back of your car. So you see, you'll see, you know, two or 300 people with their lawn chairs and they've got little carpets that they put down right. so that their foot isn't going in the, in the dirt. And, you know, you see guys with grills out there and, and, and it's been a relatively nice for the East weather wise. So while it's not, while I'd love to not have COVID, it's going better than I thought it would be, except for food and beverage. Um, people, you know, not wanting to come in. We have a takeout window that's been doing well. Um, and people are just, they're, they're adapting to it. I think we lucked out in the ski business because it had been going on from March and all these things had changed. And there was a mask mandate for the state of New Hampshire right before the ski season. People would just kind of have adjusted to it. And so it wasn't as big a stretch to get them to get it. The biggest thing they didn't like was not being able to come in the lodge, throw their bags down, change their stuff, and leave their bags laying around everywhere. Um, they, they didn't like that. And I think all of these things, these behavioral changes that are happening, are reasons to think about what your business plan is going to be for next year. Yeah, I was curious about that. It seems like this was, it was inconvenient and, and expensive, no doubt. But it's also this kind of once-in-a-generation opportunity 
to rethink the whole business and rethink some of the things that were working. And some of the things you mentioned, these are things that I've hated for years. Like the fact that you cannot go into a lodge on a weekend afternoon and, and find a chair because people have their stuff piled up to, you know, reserve the table for the day. It's these kind of things that are <laughs> that really wear you down after a while. And this gives you a chance to rethink it. So of the changes you've made, Tom, how are you thinking about, and, and I know that next season's a long way away and you just want to get through this season, but how are you thinking long-term some of these things might make sense to keep around? Oh yeah. I, I, I'm already thinking that. Uh, and, and, and as I've watched how the Christmas week went, um, I think that, that there's an advantage to being more organized in the base lodge. And there's, a, there's an advantage to, to not necessarily having those, four days a year where it's out of control because it's snowed on Thursday and it's sunny Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Right. Um, I, I just think that, that this, and, and when I got back in the business, I got back in the business because I was hoping to try to change things from the standard way that it, that it was done. And um, it's COVID, COVID's a really good, uh, there's, there's, if there's a COVID positive, and I, I'm not saying that to anyone that's had any hardships or family members that have been sick or, 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 or passed away, but it, it's, it's like you said, the behavioral changes are something that I think is something that you can take and make a plan for the next year and keep a lot of those in place to be able to make the experience better for everybody that comes to ski and ride at Gunstock. And I've been working on that since the day that, that, that Christmas week ended, talking to our senior people here and talking about ways that we can do it so that you don't have this mess in the base lodge and, 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 and it just looks terrible. And, the, and the, the, there's a line at 11.30 to 12.30 and no one can get any food. There's no place to sit because everyone's reserved tables. All these things that, 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 10 or 20% of the people think it's great and 80% thinks terrible. Um, that's the chance to change it. And I'm planning on doing that. That's amazing. I can't wait to see how it all shapes out, Tom. And the minute that the border opens back up, I will be up in uh, New Hampshire to check it out for myself. I really cannot thank you enough for your time today. And I, I wish you the best of luck with the rest of your season. Thanks, Stuart. It was great talking to you too. That's Tom Day, President and General Manager of Gunstock, New Hampshire. You heard him. He's doing it his own way. He's here to change the way things are done for the better. So those of you not facing travel restrictions, get up there. That is an operation worth supporting. You know, I've actually never been to Gunstock. This is an unusual episode in that I don't typically feature ski areas I haven't been to, if for no other reason than it's hard to really understand them until you skied them. But they pitched it, and I've really been wanting to get up there for a long time. So we found a way to make the interview happen. Normally, I'd just pop up there, but not do that this year. Not from New York. Luckily, a reader and listener, Carlton Gebhardt, gave me some extensive intel on the place. So a big shout out to Carlton for that. And a big thank you to Kristen Lodge at Gunstock for setting this up. And thank you all for listening. Next up, another good indie. Bolton Valley President Lindsay Delorier. Subscribe for free at stormskiing.com to get that podcast as soon as it's live. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.